Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 401 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Super excited to have Deanne Turner back on the podcast. We're going to talk about crushing your career. I know most of the people who listen to this show are in the 25 to 35 year old age bracket. This is right up your alley. Uh, And for those of us at my stage of life, too, hey, you're going to learn some stuff as well for those of you who are bosses. So uh, anyway, we'll tell you more about the episode in a moment, but it's brought to you by our friends at ProMediaFire. You can book your free digital strategy session today by going to ProMediaFire.com forward slash church growth and by The Leader Circle. It's my new done for you staff development training at TheLeaderCircle.live. Can't wait to tell you more about that. So Deanne Turner served for decades as Chick-fil-A's vice president of talent. And as such, she hired thousands and was responsible for the hiring of tens of thousands of people. So we got some pro tips for you today. We cover how to crush your career, advice on everything from how to prepare for a job interview, what to wear, questions to ask and not ask, how to deal with a difficult boss, rejection, and firing. She is the former vice president of talent for Chick-fil-A, where she has helped them shape their culture. She's written three books, and today she leads her own organization, Deanne Turner and Associates, where she shares her wisdom through speaking opportunities, coaching, and consulting. So, uh, man, we try to bring you world-class conversations every single week from a variety of leaders in the business space, the church space, and I'm just trying to learn like you. I'm trying to learn. And I want to thank those of you who keep leaving ratings and reviews. Thank you to Chagall. I don't know whether you're like related to Mark Chagall, the artist who whose work I love. Uh, but you say best 1.5 hours of my week. Thank you to Carrie, producers of the show. I'm a new and somewhat reluctant leader at my church. And this has been a godsend in so many ways. The one you just had uh, was with Scott Sauls and Sarah Anderson when he wrote this was so incredibly helpful and subdued. It reminded me to give this podcast a long overdue heartfelt five-star rating. No razzle-dazzle, empty glitter or propaganda, just top-notch content week after week. The show started great and just keeps amazing me. Thank you. Hey, I really, really appreciate it. And then um, uh, one of you said, it's N. Young says, I can't put this down. This is the podcast I always go back to. It's by far the most consistently listened to in my library. Always great with world-class guests. Uh, I love that Carrie lets the guests speak and doesn't dominate like a typical host. Okay, that's great. I try to remember that. Although, you know, I got a few episodes coming up where it's a little bit more like a conversation. I had Adam Grant flip the mic on me, which was a lot of fun. Um, But, you know, give me feedback like that. Well, like we're trying to make this great. And here's sort of my secret mission. I want to make this like if you went for dinner or had a meeting or coffee with Deanne Turner or Adam Grant or Simon Sinek or, or Seth Godin, what would you want to talk about? And I try to bring those conversations to you. So that's sort of the goal. Thanks for the ratings and reviews and sharing this. Hey, uh, man, I am very, very excited about what's happening over at Pro Media Fire. They're doing a great job helping churches, business leaders, and not-for-profits figure out digital strategies. So here's the reality of 2021. Everyone's online. Everyone's got content. What you need is strategy. You need a strategy for creative design, for social media, and your online pathways And you have a limited budget and your internal knowledge on your team is uh, probably limited and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. That's where ProMediaFire helps. 
They have an entire team of professionals providing digital strategy and a creative framework to help you grow online. They work with hundreds of clients and they know exactly what is working right now. So get help by getting a free strategy session at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And today's episode is brought to you by The Leader Circle. This is my brand new team development service that will help you grow your team. Um, If you're like me, developing your team is always on your mind. You're always thinking, you know, I got to train my staff. I got to bring my volunteers up to speed. And you know the drill, right? When you have to be the teacher, you have to read a book. You got to go watch a talk. You got to listen to a podcast, go to a conference. You take notes. Then you got to digest everything and then write your first draft and then turn that into a presentation. And then here's the hard part. Even if you get that all done, how do they apply it, right? And then you do that if you're like me every single month. Like, how do we grow our team? Well, now you can take that off your plate with The Leader Circle. Inside The Leader Circle, you'll find a library of calorie-dense leadership development content you can use anytime, plus every month I add a new topic. And each month, each topic includes a training video, a meeting agenda, a slide deck, and steps to apply the content with your team. So it's done for you team development, leadership development. And here's what we've done. We've added 10 licenses. So you can train your executive team, your staff, your leadership team, but they probably have people they're working with. So you get up to 10 licenses and we've made the first month free. So after 30 days, it's just $47 a month, which actually comes out to less than $5 per staff member per month. So for the price of a Starbucks, you got your whole organization trained with what I hope you'll find top tier training. So you can hop in and see what the leader circle is all about risk-free. So you can get it for a limited time at this offer by going to theleaderscircle.live. Get your first month free. I'm so excited to welcome you into the leader circle. So with all that said, let's jump into my conversation with Deanne Turner. Deanne, welcome back. It's so good to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Carrie. It's my pleasure. I've been really looking forward to being back with you again. Well, likewise, and uh, we have a lot of young leaders listening, so this one's going to be fascinating, but also a lot of mid-career pivots. You you kind of have done one over the last few years too, right? Uh, stepping away from years at Chick-fil-A and into this brand new sphere, and then 2020 changed everything, and you know, here you are. I guess we're all pivoting all the time, aren't we? Absolutely. You know, we were talking before we got started here. And the thing about this year, after all these years, I mean, 35 years in business, I have to tell you what COVID did for me is I learned more in this one year than I probably have the last 10 years combined. Just how to how to market differently, you know, the whole digital space. It's, It's actually been really good for my personal growth. Well, that's interesting because you were saying, you know, you do about 50 mostly corporate keynotes a year flying all over the place. And obviously that got derailed with everybody. So like what happened? Catch us up. Well, you know, like a lot of people, when March hit, everything was canceled and it got really quiet between March and June for me. But to tell you the truth, I had been on the road three different cities for 12 straight weeks promoting Bet on Talent. Mm -hmm. And so it was really actually, I needed the rest. I needed the time home with my husband. Our college-age son was at home and I was writing Crush Your Career. Uh, So it gave, it was a great break to finish up my book. It's interesting about this book. I, the publisher, Baker Publishing Group, and I had been talking about what my next book would be about, and they really wanted me to write the book that I wrote. But I pushed back a lot. This was in the fall of 2019, and mm-hmm. 
people in the job market, especially millennials and Gen Z, they had more work than they could dream of. Well, wasn't it 3% get, unemployment heading into yeah. the disruption? Like it was almost like full employment economy. Yeah. I mean, I've, in fact, in my entire career, I'd never seen anything like it. So I was a little bit like, they don't need this book. I mean, I had a 26-year-old son that'd been in his company six months and he already had three job offers to go somewhere else. And so I was like, they don't need this. Well, Carrie, this book, I finished the first draft um, and submitted it on March the 20th. <laughs> and I thought, you know, God knew better than I did about yeah. what would be needed in the coming year. So I'm glad it worked out that way. Well, but even so, you know, there is that stat that the average person graduating in the last decade would have five different careers, not just, I don't know, I'm making it up, but you know what I mean? We've all seen that stat, uh, but that was somewhat true. But uh, let's let's go back to interviewing um, because you were responsible for interviewing at Chick-fil-A. Um, so I got to ask you, how many people do you think, it's probably an estimate, you interviewed over the years at Chick-fil-A or were responsible for interviewing? You know what I mean? Like, like, sure. cause you didn't do it all directly, but like how many people would you have processed over the years? Well, actually it's funny. You say, I, I did do it all directly. Um, and really, I mean, I was the gatekeeper for the organization. So I really did interview anyone who was definitely selected to be a corporate staff member or franchisee. And, and then earlier in my career, you know, all kinds of candidates. And so I thought about it and um, over time. And I know that I selected over thousands of people in those roles. So given how many people had to interview in the growth of the company, I'd say it was probably in the tens of thousands of people that I evaluated. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of people. Um, I would love to know what were some of the like automatic get rid of this person? You don't even pass go on the interview. Like, were there any like just killers right up front. It's like, well, we don't need to use this full 30 minutes. Uh, any, any things like that, that, that you would say, yeah, don't, don't do this guys. If you're looking for a job. Well, this is a funny story and I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but I'm going to tell it to you, Carrie. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, we were in the food service business mm -hmm. and, um, the president of the company met every candidate that came through. And sometimes he would be in the men's room and a candidate wouldn't wash their hands mm. and he would come and tell me so. And the, I mean, because we're in food service, I mean, you have to have good hygiene habits, right? And so, yes. um, I mean, that popped up when you said this, like, is anything automatic? Cause really, you know, I tried to be sure that I, I really tried not to early in my career, I was bad about going on gut feeling about somebody. In fact, I, I, I almost was prideful and this is, this is bad, but I, I'm being uh -huh. very transparent. I was prideful that when I'd know 30 seconds after somebody got off the elevator on our floor, whether or not they were going to be selected. And as I grew, I realized that that was a really bad practice because huh. you need to do the, the due process and learn about a candidate. And there's a lot of them that I would have been wrong about. And a lot of them um, that we should have selected that I wouldn't have. And a lot that we didn't elect that we should have. So um, I learned the, to go a lot deeper on the process, but the number one thing that I really looked for in an interview was somebody with a heart to serve because we were in the service business. We were in the people business and taking care of guests. And that had to be throughout the entire organization. So if we had a franchisee candidate or a staff member that didn't really have the heart for service, I knew that wasn't a good candidate. And that was pretty much an automatic done deal. 
I want to not leave behind what you said about interviewing on gut. So uh, I kind of felt convicted by that when you were saying that and have done that before, not particularly successfully. And then I think you're dealing with a lot of young leaders, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of pastors, church staff who who would do that. They're like, oh, I can tell within 30 seconds or a minute that I'm going to hire this person or not. And a lot of us have gotten in trouble over it. What were some of the things that you thought you could trust your gut for that turned out to be faulty? Oh, what a great question. You know, I think sometimes it was, um, I think gut is about judging chemistry. Mm. Is this person going to be a great fit from a chemistry standpoint, fit on the team? And what I learned about chemistry is chemistry is not about getting along with everybody on the team. That's not great chemistry. Great chemistry is when somebody can actually bring their differences to the table and collaborate in such a way that they influence other people on the team. That's great Mm -hmm. chemistry. Well, you can't get there by just, you know, my gut feeling is they had a good handshake, a nice smile, and were transparent about telling me who they are. You need to go a little further with some good behavioral interviewing questions to understand um, how they're really going to bring that. And I think that's I think that's where we go wrong is we think we can judge chemistry with a gut. And I'm not discounting that, by the way, because if you have that warm-hearted impulse that something's not right, it probably isn't. But I think more times than not, sometimes when we think something is right, we need to go a little bit further and seek the evidence that really backs up that gut feeling. Yeah, that, that kind of leads me to the second heart, uh, half of the question, which is, Okay, are, are there some things you can still trust your gut on? Like tens of thousands of candidates later, or thousands of candidates later, you're like, yeah, my gut's usually right on this one. It's just, it's really interesting. I think a lot of leaders end up leading by their gut. And sometimes yeah. that helps us and sometimes it kills us. So I'm just curious what you've discovered. Well, what I did and what I always taught my staff was um, a couple of things. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And so if you're sensing something with your gut that it's not right, I always called it pull the string, ask, go three questions deep. Um, And so usually, you know, if you get that warm hearted impulse or that, that feeling in your stomach that something's just not right here, it probably isn't. And that was when I, when I felt more sure about it, I felt less sure about when I was like, I really like this person. I really think they're going to be a great fit. Um, I was less sure of that sometimes that required a little more investigation, but when something was uh, awry, usually if you started digging, it just got worse. Hmm. No, that is good. And sometimes I've, I've found myself, I don't really want to know the whole story because I really like this person. What are, what are some things that you will always click down on? Like you will always say, I need to know more about this when you're hiring someone. Well, I'm certainly looking for, well, I'm really looking at three things when I'm selecting talent. The first thing I'm looking for is character, character that matches the organization. Right. When you think about it, the culture of the organization is made up of the character of the people in the organization. So if you don't want to mess up your culture, you need to be really careful about the character of the people you select. So I'm looking for people whose personal mission and purpose and values align with the organization. They, of course, don't have to be exactly the same, but they need to align somewhat. Um, So that's the first thing I'm looking for. The second thing I'm really digging into is competency, competency that matches the role. 
And in an organization like Chick-fil-A, who grows a lot from within and has low turnover, and um, you're looking for people who don't just fit today's role, but do they have the potential to fit future roles as well? Um, And within that competency, I'm looking at things like leadership track record or track record in general, a track record of making good decisions about their career and things that make sense um, of the skills that they've obtained along the way. I'm looking for success in all kinds of different ways. It might be it might be academic success, although I don't think that's always a predictor of future success. It might be and it's certainly job success. And um, for people who are early in their career, I'm looking at other things they did that are outside of work and Mm. school you know, and um, the things that they've committed themselves to and how well did they stick with it and what did they achieve along the way. And then lastly, we've already talked about that chemistry piece. That's the third thing I'm looking for is chemistry that matches the team. And we did a whole other interview. We'll link to it in the show notes on recruiting and talent and all that stuff. But it's always, it's always fun to revisit that. I want to flip the hat here. So I haven't applied for a job in 26 years. I was thinking <laughs> getting ready for this. It's like I start things, then nobody has to fire me or hire me. But anyway, so it's been a long time. You make the argument that um, candidates approach jobs very differently today than they may have in the 80s or 90s. What are some of the shifts that you've seen over the decades in how people are uh, approaching a job interview? Well, certainly if you take out the anomaly of 2020. Yeah, uh, and let's put just that talk general. I mean, yeah, we're well sure. into 2021 here and people will be listening to this years down the road. So uh, let, let, let's talk about just generally the cultural shifts that have happened. Well, I think that the biggest difference is the choices in career planning. You know, the people entering the workforce today just have so many more choices than we did back in the 80s. Um, when I came out of school in the 80s, we're in the middle of a, a major recession. And we were just trying to find any job we could get. And there, and as I remember, there wasn't much room for negotiation. And now most people starting out, they they have multiple job offers, whether it's in the business arena or nonprofits or starting their own business. It seems like their options are just um, a lot more. You know, and then I think about the purpose of our generation. We went to work to make a living. And this new generation, Gen Z and these younger millennials, they're truly trying to make a life. And so I think that their their focus as they go into an interview, they're focused on much bigger picture. What is the culture of an organization? What is their lifestyle going to be versus just what is my job going to be and how I'm, how I'm, I'm going to be trained? Um, many of them will have a path and they'll make multiple moves to get where they want to go. But at the same time, they they want to be some part of something that's impactful and that makes mm-hmm. a difference. And I really see this in Gen Z. You know, when I think about the interview itself, there's so much more information at a candidate's fingertips. I mean, they can go to Glassdoor, they can go to Indeed, they can find out the exact questions that the interviewer is going to ask because people post what they've been asked. And so they actually come prepared with answers that decades ago would have never happened that way. They wouldn't have had any idea basically what the interviewer was going to ask. So it's all of that um, has changed the game a lot. And I think mostly what's changed the game is simply what you said before. It's a buyer's market and that's changed the game a lot. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I got my first job in the eighties and you're right. It was such a different world, something that someone in their twenties or thirties would have a hard time wrapping their head around. I mean, was kind of like, did your parents know anybody who was hiring? Did you see something in the newspaper? Like, I mean, it was that long ago. 
And then you would just apply for a few or it's like, well, my dad's a plumber. So, you know, maybe I'll do plumbing or uh, I know this guy who's a lawyer. So maybe I'll apply to law school. Right. Like it, it was it was a really narrow field. And what I've discovered in see if you can speak into the young leaders who are listening now. But, you know, having a lot of young adults in my life. Um, it used to be a very standard question was, you know, what do you do when you grow up? And everyone kind of had an idea. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer, whatever, whatever it would be, you know, a mechanic. And now it seems to be almost like a terrifying question to people because the number one answer from people I know in their mid twenties is I have no idea what I want to do with my life. There's so many options. I can't make a decision. Uh, do you see that trend? Any, any thoughts or comments on that or what you're seeing from this paralysis of choice? Yeah, I see it in my own household, as a matter of uh-huh. fact. I've got some um, young guys that have all kinds of things they want to do. And see, I see it differently. I know they see it as terrifying. I see it as amazing to have so many choices. And the reality is you can pursue all of them because mm-hmm. we are in a gig economy that you can, you know, uh, you know, I look at the big change that you made in your life. Well, um, going from being a lawyer to a pastor and, and, uh, now the work that you're doing now, and now, and, now and they'll do all leadership that in development. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that, um, that's, you know, that's the thing that I keep trying to coach, uh, the young people that I work with on is, is not to be dismayed and discouraged and terrified by the options, but actually the world is truly your oyster. Mm-hmm. And so the important thing is find out what your calling is. You know, calling and career can be very different things, but figure out your calling, what it is you want to do in this world and impact, and then find jobs in a career that matches up to help you achieve that best. Okay. So you just dropped a big bomb. You should see my (laughs) inbox over the years. How do you discover your calling? Eddie, I know that's a whole other podcast, but like any thoughts on that? Because a lot of people struggle with that. I uh, I have some thoughts finally after three decades of how to discern your calling, but that is a really complicating question, particularly to young leaders. Well, certainly, and it's not, and and we could do multiple podcasts, and it's a long. I think it's a long process. You know, I. I think of my own story, and all my life, I wanted to be a writer. From the time I was eight years old, mm. I wanted to write. I was almost 50 years old before I actually got to publish a book. So I had quite a path. And along the way, what I learned is writing was one of those ways, but my real calling was that my path was to help other people find their path. Mm. And so, um, and I could do that all kinds of ways. I could do that in a human resources role. I could do that as a mentor. I could do that as a speaker. Um, I could do that teaching Sunday school. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that I can help people do that. So, but I think finding the calling um, is a, is a long-term pursuit. Now there are things that I ask people, I I say things like, what gets you up in the morning? You know, what is it that stirs your soul to get out of bed? That's, that's a good indication of the neighborhood of your calling. Um, I love the question of when do you feel God's pleasure? Mm -hmm. Because that tells me a lot about what my calling would be. And for me personally, I really felt his pleasure when I was helping those people figure out, oh, this is what I want to do vocationally. This is what I want to do for my life. And um, I think that knowing what others tell you you do best, sometimes we can't see that in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need others to point out. And and that happened with me. I didn't have any intention of having a career in human resources. And it was actually somebody else that said, do you understand you have a gift? Do you understand this is your talent? And I didn't understand that. 
that it was something special. So we need to count on parents and mentors and teachers and coaches and others to help us see that as well. I want to develop that a little bit more, Deanne. So I'll just I'll just sort of throw this at you and and give you a chance to respond. But you know, uh, I think it was Todd Wilson from Exponential. Uh, he interviewed me once for a podcast he did on on finding your calling, and he helped me see something. And I think it was Peter Thiel or someone else who sort of said of all the different things he did, it kind of boiled down to there was a common thread. And I look back at my life when I was sixteen. I walked into a radio station, asked them to hire me. Then I went to law, well, I did history. Then I went to law school, got into law school, really drawn to the courtroom side of law, but then felt a call into ministry, you know, hard right, hard left, whatever you want to call it, end up in seminary. Uh, I did, I I led a church for 20 years. Then all of a sudden I launched a podcast, started writing books, started speaking. Now I do this full time. And like, where is the common denominator and all that? And finally the light went on. And this is decades down the road for young leaders. It's like, Every single one of those steps was about communication. Radio was communication. Law, uh, married to a lawyer. She loves contracts and, you know, all the details. I don't care about details at all. It's just put me in court in front of a judge. Let me make up his mind. Uh, Favorite part of the job in ministry was preaching. Uh, Guess what? I launched a podcast as a hobby. Now it's a thing. And I write books and I speak. And it's like, all of that is communication. And I, I would say you know, God's gifting as a communicator, my call is is to help leaders. And I do that using my gifting of communication. But that took me decades to figure out. Like, I couldn't have articulated that when I was 40 and barely when I was 50. That was a few years ago. What would you say to young leaders? Like, do you see anything in that? Do you see that in your life? Like, are there clues along the way? I'm just curious. Oh, sure. And, um, you know, I think about I had this job in college that I didn't think much of at the time, but I was doing, I worked in the recruiting office, Mm. recruiting students there. And I didn't connect those things. I mean, it didn't even occur to me, but you start, like you said, you start picking up these little pieces. And then I look back to, if I looked back even as a teenager and um, the things I chose to lead, you know, I was editor in chief of our school newspaper. So I'm thinking that's about writing. I'm thinking that's about my journalism future, but it was really about my leadership for future. And so those little pieces you do pick up along the way. And I think, I think what happens is instead of, instead of putting ourselves in a box, actually just blow that thing wide open and go, okay, I'm going to be open to recognizing all of these things and helping other people point them out at me and seeing that you know, I need plan A, plan B, plan C, and there's nothing at all wrong with that. Hmm. Uh, instead of feeling like I've got to find the thing and it's going to be the thing from now on. And it, I don't think that's reality anymore. Yeah. I wonder if that's the false promise is like, once I find my calling, I will know the thing that's going to carry me for the next, you know, two decades, five decades, whatever. Uh, I think that's good. Hopefully there's some clues there for young leaders. So one of the things you talk about in your new book is you kind of start with character. So again, a lot of young leaders listening, what would you say to them about their character if they're applying for a job or how that impacts their career or or where they're going in the future? Well, I put that in there because I strongly believe that character determines success in life itself before mm-hmm. you even think about working and developing your character, the decisions that you make, the judgment that you use, all these things lay a foundation in your life. When I was leading talent, at Chick-fil-A, I had a file folder um, of 
experiences that I would have with candidates about um, things that would come up that that basically were character flaws. Now, this was all anonymous. Don't get the wrong yeah, idea. Yeah. I just, but I just these lessons of things that would happen that these decisions that people made that were so unfortunate that impacted their future. And I use this for coaching with my sons. We would talk about it at the dinner table again, not by person name, but just yeah, yeah. talk about the issue. And because I think that, um, because that can derail you faster than anything you can, you can mess up from a performance standpoint. You didn't know how to do something. You weren't well trained to do something. You missed a deadline. All those things are a lot easier to get over than character flaws. So I think beginning on um, from a very young age, I mean, this is something that I encourage parents to do when I talk to them about crush your career and how your kids can do that is start with their character and start when it's young and help them develop that. Help them get a sense of what their personal purpose is, why they're here. You know, what's their big goal in life? What's their mission? And of course, what their core values are. Well, uh, what are the beliefs that they hold most dear that's going to determine their behavior? And all of that starts, I believe, you know, in our family and, and really before we can identify what we're developing. So all of us are a work in progress when it comes to character. I think of myself in my 20s and I think of myself today. Uh, what are some essentials that you think are just bedrocks for character? Well, the number one thing that comes to mind is integrity. You know, doing what you say you'll do, when you say you'll do it, how you say you'll do it, showing up. I mean, just that one word to me is like, if you can be a person of integrity, I think you have a very strong foundation on, on character. By the way, one of my favorite books of all time is Dr. Henry Cloud's book, Integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recommend it to all the young people that I engage with. Um, so I think um, starting right there, integrity is, is um, a very important, solid value. I think the other thing is really, and again, it doesn't mean that this doesn't develop the older you get, but really trying to say, what's my purpose here? Um, because I think that drives everything. And if we can identify a purpose, especially one that's bigger than ourselves, I think that helps um, drive our character and helps us uh, be a filter for the decisions we make. Because every decision we go back, does that fit with what I said my purpose is? Does that fit with my core values? Um, I think that helps make better decisions along the way. And of course, you know, from my perspective, being a person of faith, I think a biblical foundation um, has a lot to do with that too. If we can instill that from a young age and go back to that. I, a, a friend of one of my sons was spending the night with us one time and I went to I guess say good night, check on him or whatever, found him with his Bible reading Proverbs. He said, I read them every night. And, uh, you know, I mean, what wise words to shape your character than to mm -hmm. read the book of Proverbs. So I think that, I think those things are, are very intrinsic. And by the way, some people don't have good examples. Yeah, no, they come from that. really I mean, tough childhoods, tough right? Yeah. So, but I think that still, um, I mean, if somebody's in that situation, they're listening to a podcast like this, they're filling themselves with good information that's going to help them. They can still create that character. And just because you make a poor decision somewhere along the way doesn't mean it's not overcomable. And that doesn't mean you can't reshape your character from what you learn from that. As I interviewed people and we got into these issues of character from time to time, poor decisions that had been made that impacted somebody's career track. One of the things I looked for was not the mistake they made, but what was their recovery? What was ah, their response that's good. to the mistake? 
because I think that's what's most important. And, you know, it's, it's about, well, did you keep doing that or did you give up that mistake? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's where we really learn about a person's character is their ability to, to recover from it. So your book has a lot of practical advice. I want to walk through some really concrete steps. So uh, William Vanderblumen on this podcast talked about 2021 and people will be listening long after that being a year of turnover. And it made a lot of sense because people basically didn't move or didn't quit their job during the pandemic. It's like, ah, you know, but let's, let's assume a lot of people are interviewing or saying, well, you know, now that the world's kind of reopening, I'm going to look at my options. How do you prepare for the interview? How do you prepare for a job interview? Again, I'm, I haven't done this in 26 years, so help me out here. Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's important, and this is what I tell the people I mentor, is know yourself and know the organization. So let me talk about what that means. First, know exactly what you want to be sure this organization knows about you. It's like starting with the end in mind, right? And so you're looking at the skills, the experience, the goals, your aspirations, And then you want to do research on the organization and then prepare five to seven strong questions for each person you're going to interview with that's based on their role in the organization. Now, as you do this, be sure you've done your research. So the only questions you're asking are things that can't be found on their website or at Glassdoor or Indeed. Um, And then uh, when I, you know, I think about... um, well, I was going to tell you this story. It's funny. Why, yeah, tell me uh, the story. This is funny. My 21-year-old son was interviewing for internships, and he was using all this coaching advice. And so he went on Indeed, and he found the questions for this particular organization, this particular role. And the question was, what if you could be a vegetable, what vegetable would it be and why? Um, so, you, you know, you just never know what the, what kind of questions you're going to be asked. And um, you need, uh, so you need to be prepared and that's a great way to do it. And then, um, oh, uh, the, the other one that I thought about, the one I always um, hear people being asked is what's your superpower? And so mm. there's some really off the wall things that you want to be sure, not just, you know, why do you want this job and where do you see yourself in 10 years? But there's some other things out there you need to really prepare for um, to have a good answer. What would and, you say? Oh, oh, did you have more? Or? Oh, well, I do, but you go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, what would you say for those questions you want to bring the employer? Like, obviously, they've been on the website. They know what the company does. They've researched the boss or the person who's interviewing them a little bit. What would be some kinds of things, like some some helpful questions? Because I agree, there's some times where I set time aside to meet with someone and it's pretty clear, and this could be in a job situation or it could just be they wanted to pick my brain. And it's pretty clear they barely listened to a podcast interview. They've never read anything I wrote. And I'm like, I don't know why we're meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so the way I look at it, I kind of flip the script. So if I interview candidates based on character, competency, and chemistry, then if I'm a candidate thinking about how I'm going to approach the organization, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. I want to know first about the character of the organization. I want them to give me examples of how the purpose is lived out, mm-hmm. how leadership demonstrates the core values of the organization. I'm going to ask those kinds of questions. I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask questions and ask for examples. Tell me a time when, you know, uh, flip the behavioral interviewing question, if you will. I'm going to want to know things like, how are you going to evaluate my performance? What does Mm. success look like in this job? What happened to the last person that was in this role? Where did they go from here? Um, 
then I'm going to want to know about chemistry. You're like, tell me about the team I'm going to be working on. Uh, how did they measure their goals? What it, does team success look like? What does team failure look like? What does this team do for fun? So those are the, if you have always like a framework for whatever I'm doing, and that kind of gives me an outline that I want to know about the character competency and chemistry of the organization, about the role. That helps me a lot in determining what questions to ask. Oh, that's so helpful. Any, any other thoughts before we move on, on preparing for the interview? Well, the other is just your appearance. And, um, you know, I think that, and certainly, certainly we've, I mean, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like. And lots of people, people listening to this podcast have experienced this. Some people got new jobs in 2020. They've never met their boss in person. Um, I was asking my 21 year old son who went through that whole internship interviewing virtually. And I said, what would you tell people about appearance? He said, wear the whole outfit. And he said, it's not, and it's not just because someone might see your pajama pants. He said, that's not the point. He said, if you're dressed from head to toe, like you would be, if you're in person, it creates the confidence you need to project. He said, you know, my dress shoes were better than my flip-flops because I felt in the role from head to toe. And so I communicated that in my interview and I thought that was really great advice. And then he talked about virtual interviews. And since I think a lot of people are still doing those, I'll mention these things, you know, the lighting, you don't want to look like you're in witness protection program. So invest in a, in a small ring light, you know, that, that'll light you up, get good sound. Those microphones that you can plug into your computer don't cost much and neither does an external webcam. Mm -hmm. And those three things can just give you a little bit edge on everybody else because it's going to make your appearance come across uh, much stronger. Let's talk about dress code a little bit because that has shifted significantly. Like when I was in law, it was basically, um, you know, blue suit, gray suit. That was it. Yeah. I remember the day someone wore a purple custom suit in the office and they never heard the end of it anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, dress code has shifted a lot, whether it's virtual or in person. Advice for young leaders who are applying for a job. Do you, do you dress up? You know, there's that old saying, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Does that still apply? Any other thoughts on dress code? So first of all, I think you want to dress a little better than whatever their standard is. Yeah. And there's a couple of ways you can find out what their standard is. Of course, go on their website. Go on their Facebook page, their Instagram, look at, look at what the, their TikTok, look at what people are wearing at work. Um, and that'll give you the first clue. And then there's no reason you can't just ask the recruiter, hey, what's appropriate for dress in your environment? And so if they say business casual um, for a guy or, or even a gal, I would say, you know, that's um, I, I might put on a jacket with that, you know, just dress it up just a little bit. So you're just a little bit of whatever they call it. If they say really casual, then maybe go business casual with, you know, a nice pair of slacks and a dress shirt. Yeah. Okay, great. So just that, that sort of level up and make sure you're, you're on your best. Any, any other do's or don'ts for job interviews that you want to cover? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Give us some don'ts. <laughs> I mean, I always love the don'ts. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember this guy, you know, you come out to, to meet him and he doesn't stand up. So, you know, just that simple thing of making a great greeting. Don't treat people who aren't part of the job interview process like they're not important. Be polite to everybody, the receptionist, the um, whoever greets you, whoever schedules your interview. If it's a virtual interview and somebody scheduled you, go out of your way to thank them for scheduling the interview. Make everybody who's part of the process feel important. Um, you'll make a much stronger impression. 
always follow up. Don't forget to send that message um, and that handwritten note. I recommend that after the interview that you email everybody that was a part of your process and thank them. And the next day you write a handwritten note to each person who actually interviewed you. Mm. Handwritten notes really make you stand out, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, because I, I agree 100% with what you're saying, but I want to know why it matters. For somebody who's not convinced or they're like, well, I don't know, like nobody asked me to write that thank you note or is that going over the top or am I trying to kiss up or like what, what, why does that make such a good impression on an employer? Well, for me, um, I'm looking for people willing to go above and beyond because I worked in an organization that had a principal make second mile service second nature. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's an extra above and beyond these days to get a handwritten note. And because one in 10 do it, it really makes you stand out. Now, in all honesty, in this paperless society we're in, I didn't necessarily keep, now we did have files and I kept them. Somebody might nece- not necessarily keep the note, but they certainly remember that you wrote it and it makes an impression. And not only that, two days later, if they're still evaluating candidates, they get a handwritten note from you and you're not lost in the um, you know thousands of emails they have. You can really stand out as different. Not that hard, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, that that just not for interviewing, but send handwritten notes for any occasion these days and you get noticed. Yeah. That's something I learned from our mutual friend, Jeff Henderson. Oh, yeah. Very convicting. Yeah. yeah. Every guest, I think, we're almost 400 episodes in, has gotten a handwritten note from me, uh, thanking them for being on the podcast. And I have terrible handwriting, but I do it anyway. And I think it does make a difference. And I'm always excited when our mailbox has a handwritten note in it. It uh, really makes a difference. So um, here's a weird question for you. Uh, length of answer in a question. If I'm being interviewed for a podcast, I will often say to the interviewer ahead of time, and I know it's not a job interview, but what's your target length for this episode? 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, I should give two minute answers. Like, is there a good rule of thumb for like how much is too much and how little is too little in a job interview? Like, do you have any sense of, of, of the rhythm or pacing of a job interview? If you're a candidate, like, I can go on forever if I'm not careful. <laughs> sure. Well, what I do is encourage people to really watch the body language of the interviewer. Um, first of all, you don't want to give short yes and no answers that don't have any content to it. So obviously, short's not good. Really, the question is, how long do I go? Um, I One thing, one reason we end up rambling is we don't know where we're going. <laughs> so I, I tell people to start with the practice of start with the end in mind. Mm. When you're asked the question, and if you've prepared, you're going to know what most every question is, and you've given a thought about the conclusion you want to leave the interviewer with. So if if they ask you a question about, okay, tell me your number one goal in the next three years, you know what that goal is. So you, you know where you're going to end up. You're going to tell them the goal. You're going to give them an example of how you achieve it. And then you're going to stop to see if they have follow-up. But I think that's just a natural rhythm if you can get into it. You're asked the question, immediately know, I know where I want to end up. That'll keep you from rambling because you're going to work your way there and incorporate. And you didn't ask for this, but I think this is one of the best things a candidate can do because this is really what the interviewer wants. Incorporate a story or an example every time you give an answer. Mm. So when I was at my last firm, I did this when, yep, that's, that's great advice. Okay. Switching gears a little bit. You talk about raises in the book. 
How do you ask for a raise? That is really fascinating. What are some good practices, bad practices on that? Well, it's so funny that I mention it because I never ask for a raise in my life. <laughs> but I, I, I talk to a lot of young people that this is a real struggle. And I was on the side of people asking me right. for a raise. So, um, but I um, actually, I did ask one early in my career and I did it so poorly, I didn't do it again. But um, first of all, timing is everything. So you need to be aware of what's going on in your organization before you go ask for a raise. And if you just had layoffs, this sounds obvious, but I'm surprised at how many people there's a layoff and they're like, but I want to raise. Um, if they've had layoffs, if they're having a bad year in profits or sales, any of those things, as much as you'd like a raise, you've got to consider where your company's at. And that might not be a good time. You want to make sure that you actually talk with your boss in person or these days on Zoom in person. You don't want to, I mean, again, you'd be surprised how many people want to send an email or a text message um, to talk about this. Um, if your company's doing well, um, what you want to do is point to your results of how you've helped them achieve that. That's really the discussion to have is, is to explain any additional responsibilities you've taken on, any competencies you've gained, and the results you've produced. Your boss is not interested in all the tasks you completed unless they led to some results. So the way usually people get raises unless they're automatic cost of living raises. A merit raise usually comes from taking on more responsibility, adding to your competency, some kind of certifications, classes that you took, skills that you gained. And then lastly, and most importantly, are the results. And so you want to be very prepared with the data that backs up exactly what you did to contribute to the team or organization's success. <laughs> taking me back at the law firm I was at, I only worked there for a year, we were under underpaid compared to the other downtown firms. So one of the first things I did when I got hired there was negotiated for a 50% pay increase for the articling students and uh, really angered one partner, but made the other ones really happy. And then I made the oh. money back. Yeah, that was fun. It was like, wow, that's what you do when you're in your 20s. It's just like, I think we should be paid back. And I went in with data and researched everything. And they're like, okay, you get more money. How do you, I wouldn't be nearly as confident today. How, 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 how do you broach that subject? How do you come to, if I'm your boss, what, what are you saying to me to break the ice on that? The first thing comes to mind is what you're not saying. And then I'll get to what you are saying, yeah. because what you don't want to do is go in and make threats. Like, you know, if I don't get more money, I'm leaving. And again, people really do that these days. You can make those decisions later. That, that shouldn't have anything to do with the discussion you're going to have with your boss. So when you go to ask for a raise, I think you say, hey, there's some things I've been researching. So number one, you need to know your market value, just mm -hmm. like what you did. That was very smart. You knew your market value. And so you find that out. And this is what I understand to be the market value. And so I'd like to have a conversation about the responsibilities I've gained, the competencies that have increased this year, and the results I've created. Um, if your boss doesn't want to listen to that conversation based on what I just said, you're probably in the wrong organization because that's a great approach. And you're being really clear about what you want to talk about. And then after you've talked about it, I think it's a question. Do you see that I fit? the, you know, what the market level is for, or pay for this, or it, you may be above market. It's like, do, do I exceed your expectations enough that I should be paid above market level for this? Those are the kinds of, and, and you put it out there and, you know, you can't control the outcome. All you can do is 
put the information out there and let them make a decision. They make their decision, then you make your decision. And how valuable you are to them will depend on how they respond to that. You talk about rejection, failure, disappointment in your book, which I'm so glad that that you cover. How do you handle it if you make the request for a raise and it gets rejected? If you apply for a job, let's say it's job number 10 this year and you keep getting rejected, failure. What are, what are some strategies or approaches for leaders who are in that season right now in their work? Sure. Well, one of the things I talk about in, in Crush Your Career is it sounds like this book all about how um, I use my own success and now I'm writing about it. I actually say in the introduction that this book is far more about my own failures Ooh. and mistakes that I made and what I learned from it. Because people learn a lot more from your mistakes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if, if any of us are successful, we're all going to experience failure or rejection at some point in our career. And as I said earlier, of course, how we respond to it is important. And don't forget that rejection is not always our fault. I think sometimes people own that, like I did something. You know, it's it's sometimes it's unfounded. But Here's some of the things that I recommend dealing with rejection. The first is to understand your identity is not in your job or your title or your role in the company. We all know that our identity is in Christ, in our faith. So I think staying grounded in that will help you manage failure. I mean, that's like the foundation of managing failure. And then secondly, what I suggest is that you examine your own heart. You know, when rejection affects us sometimes, um, what we find out is there are things that are hurt in there that, that cause us to respond in such a, a way. So identify the hurts and heal those and they'll, the behavior will follow. So I'm going to give you an example. Yeah, yeah. I was giving coaching one time to one of my team members and she was, she was treating some of her staff pretty badly. So I said, so I started talking to her about this and what I realized is that she had some hurts going on and hurt people hurt people. And so I kind of stopped the conversation. I said, look, this is what I see, and it's really not my business, but I'm going to give you this feedback, and then you can decide what to do with it. I said, I see some real hurt here, and I think you need to peel back those layers. And she, when I started talking about you know, some of the things I was seeing that needed to be changed, she started making a list. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And I stopped her, and I said, if you'll heal the hurt Actually, those behaviors will follow and you don't even have to make a check checklist because this is coming from a place that isn't working for you. So I, I think that that's really important that you look at, you know, if I failed and it has anything to do with the way I've treated people or um, the way I'm performing, it might have something to do with a hurt that needs to be taken care of. Mm. Um, the third thing is to admit that, uh, that rejection might not be about you at all. Some things you can't control. And so you just have to let go of those because, um, you know, one of the examples I give in the book was a young lady who was working for an organization and, and she was giving a presentation and somebody had decided that, that something that she was doing, um, had to do with, um, a racial issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and she just is like, and I knew it had nothing to do with it, by the way, she told the story and her leader told the story, but somebody else in their organization took it differently. And sometimes you just can't do a whole lot about those things. You can explain your point of view, but people make, um, decisions and, and you can't help that. Um, I think that the last thing I would say is accept that rejection's painful, but don't wallow in it. Mm -hmm. Grieve it, learn from it, and move on. And the faster you move on in response, 
um, respond, you'll be successful. That's exactly, by the way, what that young lady did in that situation. You know, she dealt with it, but she didn't get all stuck in it. And she actually turned out, um, has been promoted three or four times since and has mm. had, is having an incredible career. And I credit her career to that one big moment when there was a lot of attention on her about this particular rejection and she dealt with it. She grieved it. She moved on. And I think that it helped make her really successful. Hmm. Talk about an abusive boss. Um, I think we've all worked for one at some point. How do you know your boss is abusive? And then how do you deal with him or her? Well, an abusive boss is simply someone who doesn't treat people with honor, dignity, and respect. And so that can come out in a number of ways. That can come out as intimidation. That can come out as talking behind your back. Um, But no one deserves to be abused or bullied in the workplace. And so if you find yourself in that situation, the first thing I tell people is don't panic and don't fear because bullies feed on fear, right? And so they exploit those emotions. And so instead of reacting, because fear just shuts us down and enables the boss even more. So we have to find a way. It's like, okay, I have to overcome that fear. The second thing I really encourage people to do when that happens is to document the behavior that's happening. You want to write down the words and the actions and include anybody who's there when it happens. This could be really important later. You want to seek counsel from others and avoid being isolated. Abusive and bullying people like to isolate people to keep them fearful. So find someone probably outside of your organization at this point to talk to, to help you normalize your emotions and think rationally about how to handle it. Now, this is really most important. It's just like the playground bully. If you have a bully at work, you have to stand up to them, even if it's your boss. Now, there's risk that comes with that, right? I mean, tremendous risk that comes with that. But bullies attack people primarily that they think will not fight back. And so when you do, often that resolves the situation. When you just stand up and say, these are my boundaries, and I'm not going to be treated like that. That's not acceptable. Now, if all this doesn't work, you got to get help. Because, you know, most organizations don't want these kind of people in their organization. It's first, of course, it destroys their culture. And secondly, it can cause them a lot of legal problems. So Mm -hmm. if you tried all these other methods, that documentation I mentioned, that's a time to go and sit down with another leader in the organization and say, I need help in managing this. And this is what's happened and communicate that. And if your organization doesn't help you at that point, I hate to say this because I know this is a tough decision, but then it's time to go. Because no one should be treated that way. So most of us, when we start out in leadership, we're hired to do things, you know, flip those fries, <laughs> you know, flip the burger, whatever, the chicken, whatever, whatever you happen to be doing. But eventually, hopefully a lot of us turn, turn into a leadership role. When you think back on the thousands of people that you've hired and you've managed, what are some of the, the characteristics that move someone from a doer to a leader? Wow. Well, I think, um, first of all, is, is recognizing that you're no longer a specialist. You have mm. to be a generalist. Um, one of the greatest, well, the, the greatest learning and development experience that I had personally was when I moved after 30 years of leading talent, the organization placed me in a role to launch and lead the sustainability function for the company. Now, I like to tell people I didn't know a lot about sustainability at that point. 
Um, I wasn't even a very good recycler, I'm embarrassed to say. Much better now, but not at that time. And here I was in charge of this responsibility for the organization, on top of which all those people, I mean, 7,500 people that worked for me in talent, I selected every single one of them, Mm. and they selected working for me. In this new role in sustainability, I became their boss, not by their choice, and they became my team, not by my choice. All that's to say is that was a huge learning and development opportunity for me. And, And what I had to learn is, you know, I could do every single thing there was to do in talent. I had done all those jobs because I had grown up from an hourly employee into those roles. I didn't know how to do anything in sustainability. All I could do is lead others to do it. And so that was like, that was jumping right, you know, right into the deep end of the swimming pool. That's a great way to learn how to quickly um, go from um, no longer being a doer. Mm. Of course, you have to develop the skill of delegating. And delegating is not just telling other people what to do. It, it requires you to d- identify the best person to actually accomplish something, teach them how to do it, and then hold them accountable for actually doing it. And so th- that in itself is a, a huge skill to learn, but it's really the only way you can go from doing to leading. Along that same vein, you want to maximize the team capability. Each member is playing the assigned um, role with the, with you as the leader. You're casting vision and setting strategy and sharing the goal setting and scoring the results. When teams operate at this level, this is real competitive advantage. And fourth, you want to make it all about the team. Mm. It's all about the we, not the me, when you go from lead, from doing to leading. You don't accomplish anything, but together the team can accomplish everything. When the team succeeds, you want to give them credit. And when they fail, you want to take responsibility. And if you need an example of this, just watch any Saturday in the fall and most, most, not all, most every single college football coach, that's exactly what happens. The team succeeds. They talk about the team. They fail. They talk about what they did wrong. Mm. Yeah, that's a hard one as a boss, you know, to really say no, anything. And sometimes you are falling on the sword for things that, really bother you personally, but it's like, I'm going to cover my team on this one. All right. Let's talk about, before we wrap up, let's talk about firing. Everybody's favorite thing to do, not, um, and, and not the favorite thing to be, uh, best and worst practices on firing. Well, I have to say that it's another thing I'm not, um, overly experienced at doing. Because you had uh, very low turnover. Yeah. Well, and we had that because we put all of our money and resources and time and focus into selecting great talent so that that wouldn't happen. But a few times it did happen. And, and again, in, as I'm out consulting, I deal with this a whole lot more. Number one, absolutely, this should not be a surprise. If it's a performance issue, it's ethical, that's different. But if it's a performance issue, it shouldn't come as a surprise. The process should have been so so much that by the time you get there, you're both realizing this is not working. I heard about this um, the week before Christmas. Somebody who was terminated from their job, it was clearly performance issues. And here it was three days before Christmas and they were fired and it was a total shock. What a horrible thing to do to someone. So um, to start with, it'll make your job, if you're in that situation that you have to fire somebody, if you've done a great job of giving performance feedback, opportunity to improve, performance feedback, opportunity to improve. You get to about the third time of this. This isn't a surprise to anybody. That's the first thing I would say is it shouldn't be a surprise. And secondly, 
Um, the other thing is take some personal responsibility. Again, if it's a performance issue, you selected this person. And so you have some responsibility to make them successful. So be sure that you've um, you've gone through the process of have I, is it a new role they need, a new leader they need, or um, some new training or development that they need and they could actually be successful. And lastly, um, when the time comes, of course, be as, um, and we're, we're not talking about somebody who's done something unethical in the organization. That's a whole different story. But somebody, because most firings are because of performance, but treat that person with honor, dignity, and respect. Treat them the way you would want to be treated in that situation. And if you can help them get to their next place, isn't everybody better? They don't have a bad taste in, their org- in the organization. It didn't work out. And it probably didn't work out because um, it might not have been a good selection to begin with. It might not have been the right fit on the team. All kinds of reasons. But if it wasn't a willingness, per, I mean, if somebody didn't just quit on you, but they were really trying, then, you know, it's great if you can come with that documentation. You can explain why it's happening, but then treat them humanly, whether that's a severance package or that's outplacement help or something that gets this person to their next place in life. I think that's just being a really good human being when we do that that way. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned that um, so often being let go comes as a surprise to a person. Why do you think as an employer, lots of employers listening, why do you think so many employers end up shocking people when they terminate them? What are... What are the reasons we're so afraid to have the conversation before we have the really big conversation? Well, I think number one is that in general, most organizations do a poor job of communicating feedback and Mm. performance management. It's just a reality. People don't like to do it. And even when you have the greatest system, people still don't like to do it. It's a hard thing to do, especially if you have to give negative feedback. And my encouragement there is learn to get better at that. If you're a leader, it's a big part of your job. And instead of fearing it for having to give negative feedback, realize it's a stewardship role. If you're a leader, your biggest responsibility is to be the steward of talent. So part of stewarding that talent is helping them get the most out of their performance. And again, if we're talking about somebody who's, who really wants to do a good job, who's trying hard, but can't just get it, then I see that as a steward of them is to get them to the next place. So I think if you change your whole mindset about performance management in general to say, I'm being a steward and giving them this feedback is going to give them what they need to know to either be successful in this role or be successful at something else. I think number two, a lot of people and a lot of organizations have a culture of wanting to be nice instead of kind. I think you and I talked about this on my first interview. I can't remember, but I'm thinking we no, may it's have. it's worth repeating. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so you want to be nice instead of kind. Nice is when I care what you think about me. But kindness is when I truly care about you. And if this is the best thing for you, this, this job is not a good fit. You're not doing well. You need to know that. Those types of conversations, then the kind thing to do is to let them know. I had a mentor at Chick-fil-A, my very favorite thing he taught me, Jimmy Collins, who was a former president of Chick-fil-A. And he taught me it's kindness to refuse immediately what you eventually intend to deny. And so if you have that team member who it's not working out, you've tried everything, going, dragging that on and on, creating expectations in their mind that things are going to get better is really not kindness to them. It's really better if you go ahead and tell them. 
if somebody thinks they're getting a promotion and really they're not getting a promotion, you don't think they're ever going to get the promotion, then it's more kindness to tell them. And um, that's there's a big difference between those two. So I think those are the reasons that that people, they don't do a good job of performance um, management to begin with. And then, well, the other thing I didn't mention to you, Carrie, I think the other reason is because they're really not self-aware. They, they think that somebody should know this, but really it's only the things they thought in their mind. They never actually <laughs> never came out of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Never came out of your mouth. You're thinking they just should know this and they don't. Mm. Um, and I think thirdly, sometimes it just really is a lack of skills in this whole area. I mean, being able to fire somebody is really similar to being able to correctly select the talent to begin with. Hmm. Deanne, this has been rich. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Oh, um, it seems like we've covered a lot of mm-hmm. um, territory. Yeah, a little nitty gritty. It's good. And tell us about the book and where people can find it too. I will. The last thing I want to tell your audience though, because I'm hoping you have some, I know you have young people that follow you, Carrie, and that are in this season of some are graduating right now from college, trying mm-hmm. to figure out what's going to happen there. Are they're transitioning? 2020 was not a good year and they're transitioning in 2021. And this is the thing I want to say. It's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be things to get over, but it's going to be okay. And sometimes it's not, um, it's not a straight path. There are lots of curves, but it's in the curves that the things that are part of our own personal path happen that get us to where we're ultimately going to need to be. So that's my encouragement. And then uh, learn about me. Yes, um, this week, as this is being released, we have a, I have a brand new book, Crush Your Career, Ace the Interview, Land the Job, and Launch Your Future. And it's available wherever great books are sold, including my website, deanturner.com, or on the book's website, crushyourcareerbook.com. And then please come and follow me. Hook up with me on LinkedIn, um, at Facebook, Deanne Turner Author, at Instagram, at Deanne Turner, and on Twitter, at Deanne Turner. Oh, that's awesome. Deanne, thanks for being with us again. So appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Carrie. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you once again. Well, so many tips there. And I'm going to come back with three things I teach all of my team, particularly my young staff. So hopefully that helps you. And coming up, we got some uh, great episodes. We've got Simon Sinek still. Uh, let's see, Ian Morgan Cron, Rick Warren, John Maxwell, Adam Grant, Cal Newport. But next time, it's Michael Arietta. Mike is someone who had a very, very rapid career path in Atlanta, Silicon Valley. He was part of DocuSign and many other startups. And uh, we talk about his life, his near demise as a young leader, and where he's at now doing some really exciting projects. Here's an excerpt. Is all the success worth it? No. It's not. No, it's not. I think the real currency is looking at your children when you're older and for them to say, dad and mom, I don't know how you guys did it, but you crushed it. 10 out of 10. Come over here and give me a kiss and a hug. You're, I mean, I just hope that I could be a decimal of what you were to me. That's next time. And Mike was also a listener of the podcast too. And it was a another guest I had, Pat Gelsinger, who's now the CEO of Intel, who uh, just got an appointment there, who introduced us. So it's really great to bring you Mike's story. It super inspired me. And uh, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. Going to talk about three leadership secrets that can help young leaders gain an edge. 
and it's brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can head on over to ProMediaFire.com to book a free digital strategy session by going to ProMediaFire.com forward slash growth and by the Leader Circle. It's my brand new done-for-you staff development available first month free at theleadercircle.live. So, ah, wow, you're onboarding staff. You're trying to figure out how to get everybody on the same page. And what I've found is that when I teach three things, and I've done this for over a decade now with onboarding staff, particularly young staff, these give young leaders a huge competitive advantage. So I teach all my staff. It's like, here's three things I want from you. I want proactivity, okay? So often it's easy to sit back as a team member and just let things happen. And that never goes well. So I always tell my team, like, if you see something, own it, right? Be proactive, take the initiative. Don't wait for someone to ask you to solve a problem. Start tackling it. If you're not sure, then ask and say, hey, Carrie, can can I tackle this one, you know? I'm going to at least be grateful you saw it, if not give you full authority to handle it. Uh, On the other hand, if it's in your area and you see it, solve it. Um, If you're wondering if you should do something as a leader, stop wondering and do something. So that's number one, proactivity. Number two is responsibility. Often in a team setting, responsibility for tasks is unclear. And, you know, you've all been in a retail setting where you ask someone a question, they're like, well, that's not my department. I mean, that is the worst answer ever. And you don't want that happening in your organization. So I always tell my my team members, assume responsibility. You may get a complaint about, um, you know, a product that you have nothing to do with. It's like, you own it. You own it. Horst Schultze talked about this uh, when he was on the podcast, right at Ritz-Carlton. If you're the electrician and you found out that there's a room problem, you own that. Like, I, it's not not your department. It's like you own that. So proactivity, responsibility. When things are unclear, just assume responsibility. That's what all great leaders do. And then the third factor is communication. I am convinced you cannot over-communicate. Uh, marriage and families collapse because of poor communication. And so um, just communicate, communicate, communicating. So I always say to my team, do that. If you're over-communicating, I will let you know. I have never told anyone they're over-communicating. Not yet, anyway. So when in doubt, communicate. Uh, When you think you've over-communicated, you've just begun. Those are three superpower skills for leaders. I try to embrace them, proactivity, responsibility, communication. When my team embraces them, they do really well. And I think when you embrace them, you're going to do really well too. So be proactive take responsibility and communicate, communicate, communicate. Really hope that helped you. Hey, thank you so much for listening this week. Can't wait to come back with Mike Arietta next time and a host of great podcasts, I hope for you coming up in the future. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. Uh, Thank you for being so encouraging and kind. These are hard times. I'm so glad we're in it together. And I hope our time together today helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.